2 Timothy 1, 6 through 14. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. This is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me keep as a pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. All right, good morning. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. Uh, thanks, Nikki, for reading that, and uh, thanks, band. I was worried I was going to lose my voice, but I, uh, I really love singing that song with you all. That's, uh, I, I, that's a pretty good one. Uh, well, welcome to Hiawatha Church. If, if uh, you're new or visiting us, uh, thanks for being here. Hopefully there was someone here to greet you. It's a little bit more full than normal because we're down to one service here for the month of July, but I love this chance just to get to see uh, everyone here uh, kind of all, all in one place. So um, yeah, welcome. Welcome, everyone. Um, this morning, we're going to be digging into Second uh, Timothy. So that's the, the series that we're in right now. Chris kicked us off last week uh, to kind of kick off the book and, and look at the first um, five verses. And so we're going to be spending some time for the rest of the summer preaching through the rest of this book. So, uh, But before we dive into that, I wanted to give you a quick intro on who I am because uh, I'm not normally up here. So in the summers, we uh, get to give a break to Chris and Spencer who preach most of our sermons. And so the rest of us on the overseer team uh, get to step in. So um, this is me, uh, my wife Ellen, and our three boys, Luke, Truman, and Fletcher. Uh, you probably see them wearing cape shirts around here. They uh, really love those and wear them a lot. Uh, so but yeah, four, two, and one. And uh, lots, of, lots of energy in our house. Uh, and then uh, a little bit more about me is uh, I work in technology. So uh, I nerd out on that stuff a little bit. And then uh, hobbies that I like are gardening or talking about AI or aquariums or golfing. So happy to talk about any of those things or anything else that interests you. But uh, those are some of the things that, that I'm into. So uh, as Nikki read today, we are going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 14, and um, titled today's sermon, Guarding the Good Deposit. Uh, and so um, just, again, a quick intro to the book of Timothy, since, uh, 2 Timothy, since we're new in it uh, here now this summer, uh, is that this is a book written by Paul to Timothy, uh, a fellow pastor. And so um, Timothy is, is Paul's protege, um, and, and uh, Paul has worked with him for a long time, and this is most likely Paul's last letter that he ever wrote. Uh, so he's imprisoned, um, and he is uh, looking ahead to the end of his life. And so there's a lot of uh, teaching and exhorting in ways that we don't often see in, in uh, Paul's other letters. So um, that's kind of what we're going to see here. So as I was studying this and praying about uh, what to preach and um, kind of what we 
should look at here today, uh, I kind of had this question pop into my mind, and it's, uh, I didn't get to do the big question series, so maybe I'm uh, making this my own a little bit, but uh, this question of why do we preach the way we preach here, here at Hiawatha Church, uh, and oftentimes the question behind that is, why, why are we always getting to, to Jesus? Why don't we always end sermons with a now go and do? Um, or another way of saying this of why, why do we care so much about gospel-centered preaching? And so I think, um, I think this passage in 2 Timothy is going to really help us uh, address that well. So uh, it's a question we get oftentimes. And um, so since, yeah, since I'm up here, I thought let's, uh, let's dig into that. So uh, and I also just want you to know this is a pastoral epistle, but it has something for all of us. Uh, there, there are things um, for all of us in here as we look at this, and so I think we'll, we'll get to dig into that uh, in helpful ways here today. So, uh, but before we, we dive in anymore, um, let's pray. God, I just pray for um, all of us in this room uh, as, as we look at your word together, God, uh, as, we, as we sing and, and raise our voices, as we um, just have different things stirred inside of us, God. Would you um, lift the loads uh, off of our minds? Would you uh, help help reveal the things that are um, just entangling us in, in sin and in doubt, um, God? So would you help us see that your burden is light um, and that you are right there with us in the midst of all of this? So thanks for this word here today. Um, God, I pray that you would speak through me uh, in spite of me, and that um, people would be encouraged and, and see you this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to break this down today into three different sections, and uh, we're actually going to look at the middle of the passage, the beginning, and then the end. So we're going to shake it up a little bit. Uh, and so I want to look right in the middle, at the middle two verses. We're going to read them again, um, because there's, there's a lot to unpack here. So let's read verses 9 and 10 again. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Uh, Chris often says this, and uh, as someone who doesn't preach a lot, I don't often know how that could be true, but uh, this passage in particular could be a sermon all of its own. We, we could spend all of today just looking at these two verses, because um, there's a lot that we could unpack in here. But um, So what I'm going to do is intentionally circle a couple areas of this, and we're going to look at it together. Uh, so the area that I kind of want to look at is right at the beginning when he says, he has saved us and called us to a holy life. Um, it's a clear exhortation from Paul here uh, telling us that all of us as, as believers, if, if you claim Christ, that we've been called to a holy life. Uh, and I think if uh, that word holy gets thrown around a lot in Christian circles and uh, even, quite frankly, just in other religions, uh, that idea of being holy. And so if you're like me and you don't actually learn the definitions of words but just use them in context, uh, then uh, you might be a little bit confused as well and kind of what does it actually mean to be holy? And so I think that the basic definition of being holy is to be set apart, uh, to, to be um, kind of set away from things. And so when we think about Christianity, it's being set apart from sin, set apart from um, temptations of the world, and, and to be close to God, because the Bible says that God is holy. And so then to be holy, to live a holy life, is to live a God-like life, to be set apart with God. And so I don't know about you, but uh, that sounds really difficult to me, and that, that feels like a big burden. Um, if being holy is being godlike, uh, I do not think I, I meet the mark there. So 
Um, but if you're right ahead, you, you see the good news that's there. And this is um, kind of where I just want to give you an encouragement here right, right at the beginning today, which is that as we read on, um, you can see, what does it say? That we are called to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. So just read that and let that lighten your load this morning. If you're like me, you're here with a lot of baggage. I had a hard week. There was a lot going on. Um, last night, our one-and-a-half-year-old figured out how to escape his crib, um, which for parents of young children, that is about uh, the most terrifying thing that can happen. So um, there's a lot that's going on. There, there's a lot of hard things. And, and I think there's times even this week that I have not felt in control and I've felt um, like my life is just like, I don't know what's going on. And when things are tough, it can be really hard to, to feel close to God, to feel like we're living a holy life. We, we may intellectually know things that are true about him, um, but our emotions and feelings probably aren't always aligned with that. And yet what you see here is that the load has been lifted. Jesus has lifted that heavy load off your shoulders. So we no longer need to feel the burden of living a, a holy life um, because Jesus already, already did that. So as you think this morning on your particular, whatever's going on, the, the loads that you're coming here this morning, the things that just pop into mind when I say those words and, and you just feel heavy, lay those things down with me this morning at the foot of the cross so that instead holiness becomes a state of being. It becomes more like Lazarus being called up from the dead out of the grave by the words of Jesus so that it is not by our own works, but it is completely by his own purpose and grace. So lay those things down with me this morning um, and let's keep digging in because I think there's some really good things here for us. So let's read on. Kind of picking up in the second half of nine here. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So God has saved us. He has made us holy, not by any of our works, but by his own purpose and grace. And then how are we receiving that grace or what's happening? That's all through Jesus. And then what does this say Jesus did? It says that he destroyed death. So let's think about that together for, for a second, the fact that Jesus destroyed death. And why is, why is that such a big deal? I, uh, I actually think about death a, a decent amount. Not sure how healthy that is, but probably healthier than not thinking about it at all. But uh, I think we, we all see death all around us all the time, right? That, that, those are the things we're, we're bombarded with in the news. Um, and just as we get older, I've found I'm not that old uh, yet, but uh, as, as we age, I think there are just hard things that happen in life. Um, there's people that get sick in our lives. We have pets that die. We, we see, um, you know, really crazy freak accidents that happen. And so we're constantly reminded of our mortality, of the fact that our life is um, finite and not infinite. And that's, that's our collective human experience, right? We're, we're all kind of, so much of what we do, the decisions we make are oriented around that idea that life is short, that we don't have immortality. Um, it doesn't feel natural to die either, does it? It's, it's, uh, counter to what we all know should be right. We all, we all know that 
death is an unnatural thing. Um, and so death, apart from Christ then, from the world's perspective, I don't think, as Dumbledore says, it is not the next great adventure. It's terrifying. Death is terrifying if you don't have hope beyond this life. And so I'm, again, I'm a bit of a tech nerd, and so this kind of caught my attention. I was just kind of trying to find some interesting stats on this. But in 2021, the global anti-aging market was valued at $62.2 billion, meaning that we as a collective human species spend a heck of a lot of money trying to reverse the effects of aging, um, trying to avoid thinking about death. And so I read this story. Uh, maybe you guys have seen this. I don't know. This has really been popping up in my feed. So somehow the algorithm uh, thinks I like this. But I read this story about a tech uh, guy who's spending $2 million a year to basically reverse his age. So he is 45 years old, and he has a whole team of doctors and a whole bunch of stuff that he does, studies. And he's trying to reverse his biological age back to the age of 18. Um, and he actually has made some interesting progress. I've been tracking a little bit. It's kind of interesting. <laughs> um, but I think the point here is that we collectively as people, as a society, as humans, we are terrified of death. And yet it says right here that Jesus destroyed death and that he brings life and immortality to us. And that's what he did up on the cross. So why, why is this all connected? Um, you know, holiness, destroying death, immortality. I think Paul is getting at the fact here that to live a secure, holy life, we have to realize that our life isn't even ours anymore. Jesus destroyed our greatest enemies, and now we are secure with him, and nothing can take away our life with him. And guys, when that sinks in, that changes everything. When, when you realize the power that God has over your life, um, we don't even have time to go into a sentence that you might realize I'm just skipping over here when it says that this grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. It means God has had a plan for you in your life before you were ever even an idea, before time even existed in our universe. And that is mind-boggling and should just make your head explode. And so... As we receive all of this, I just want you to be struck by the magnitude of God's power. It is all greater than our own. And he is not limited by our inability to live a holy life uh, or our lack of action. He is powerful and he continues to give us grace. So just sit in awe of that this morning. Um, so with that kind of in mind as the backdrop... Let's move ahead here, uh, and let's dive into this next exhortation that Paul gives Timothy, which is to join in my suffering. So we're going to read verses 6 through 8 here. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying out of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So we're jumping right back to the beginning here where Paul is exhorting Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God that he has. And as he's fanning that, that gift, uh, he is saying, uh, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the gospel or of me, Paul, who's suffering for the gospel. But actually, join me in my suffering. 
join me in my suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So I think there's three ways we can kind of unpack what's going on here. Uh, we'll kind of look at both what this means for us as people, what this means for us who are pastors in the room, and ultimately um, how we see Jesus in this. Paul says right here, God does not give us a timid spirit. Uh, but what does he give us? Instead, he gives us a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. I think those are three really interesting kind of words or ideas to put together. Um, you know, kind of balancing that with this idea of being timid, but instead having power, love, and self-discipline in how we um, share the gospel. Uh, but the question I think here is, is to what end? Uh, why do we have those things? And, and I think the quick answer is so we can boldly go and proclaim the gospel. That is the power that God gives us. Um, but what it, the idea that Paul is linking here is that Timothy is, is ashamed, uh, or at least that's kind of implied in the text here, that, that there is something shameful about Paul being thrown in prison or something shameful about um, having to share the gospel. Um, and I think there's this idea of shame. There's fear in that. There, there are uh, elements of uh, what does it look like to be afraid of the gospel. And so I want to pause and just either give a word of warning or ask you to think for yourself on, um, you know, are you ashamed of the gospel this morning? And, and, you know, if you're like me, you're probably quick to be like, no, 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 I read these all the time, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But I think it's easy to read through verses like this and quickly fall into the trap of just reading right over them and assuming, you know, it's not us. Or like, yep, I believe that. I'm good. Um, but this is emphasized in a lot of different places in the Bible. So just rapid fire, I'm going to go through a couple examples here of other places where the Bible talks about being ashamed. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. 2 Timothy 1.8, So do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or me as prisoner. Rather, join me in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God. Mark 3, Mark 8.38, If anyone is ashamed of me or my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Luke 9.26, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And 1 Peter 4.16, However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Shame is a really powerful thing. Um, and the reason I'm just pausing on this and kind of calling this out is I think it can be easy to assume we're not ashamed. Um, but if you reframe that in your mind a little bit as being afraid or being fearful um, and kind of examine your heart in that lens this morning, I think there's a lot of places where we get afraid of the gospel. Um, places where we um, don't say the thing that we know we should say where well, we are not bold. Uh, we're like Peter. We deny Jesus again and again and again. And yet, if you are feeling ashamed, if you know that that's you this morning, um, that you're not taking the gospel as seriously as you should, um, there's still really good news for you. And that's that it's the Spirit who gives you the power to, to speak. And so, um, you know, even up here as, as I prepare to preach, uh, I, I never try to fool myself in thinking that um, I'm going to say all the perfect things to, to make this connect, but it has to be relying on the Spirit's power to, to move and to work and to stir in our hearts. So, um, it's, just a, it's just a caution this morning just to say, examine your heart on, on where are you potentially ashamed of the gospel. And then I want to jump ahead now and look at how Paul um, kind of compares the opposite of being ashamed 
And that's where he says, uh, in, in suffering. Um, and so I think that's an interesting thing to kind of pair with this, that the opposite of being ashamed of the gospel is suffering for the gospel. Um, but lest we kind of jump to, you know, kind of radical, like, oh, we just need to immediately throw ourselves into, like, really horrible situations for the sake of the gospel. Uh, I also wanted to look at just what are ways that we all suffer, you know, collectively for the gospel together, because I think there's ways that that does happen for us. Um, so this can be, like, super practical, um, but just ways that kind of came to my mind of when we live out the gospel in our context, in our church, how are we suffering um, I think we, we sacrifice our time, our energy, our money, and our resources to be in this community together. Um, I think I've come to realize just living in Minneapolis, like, this is not normal to a lot of people that live in Minneapolis. The fact that we all gather, that we give money, that we give our time, that we spend so much time hanging out with each other, uh, opening up our homes, sharing our food. Um, and that, that is, you know, to an extent, a, a form of suffering. Um, I think we, we sacrifice and suffer relationally. Um, we, we are a diverse group of people. Uh, we might not all come together and just be friends automatically if we didn't have this unifier of the gospel. And so I think the gospel is a thing that helps us even suffer relationally as we um, become friends with people that aren't exactly like us. And that can take a lot of extra work. We can suffer rejection when we share our faith, uh, when we, when we, um, tell people that Jesus is the only answer. That is an offensive thing to our culture, um, to say that Jesus is the only answer. And so we can suffer relationally in the relationships that we have. So even thinking about those of us have, who have kids, we, how we suffer for them. You know, they are, they are a great mission field as well, and there's so much that we sacrifice and put on the line for the sake of, of our children. Um, and absolutely, suffering can be more than this, Right? We know there's people and read stories about people and probably even know people who have suffered dramatically for the sake of the gospel in, in other places. And so um, I just share all this to say, I don't want you to feel heaped upon either on, hey, are you ashamed or hey, are you suffering enough for the gospel? Um, but instead, I want you to see that if you're sitting here and you know you're ashamed or you know you're fearful, um, look to God who gives the power to share boldly and courageously. And if you are sitting here today and you are suffering and you are weary and broken and you're not sure how to continue on because um, you have suffered so much for the sake of the gospel, um, look to Jesus who has suffered for you, who gives you the power, the love, and the self-discipline to continue through. So that's kind of, I think, some, some implications for us there uh, just as, as people living out the gospel. I also just wanted to pause here um, and just take a minute just to kind of share uh, my, my heart with you all. Um, you know, it's, I, I've been pondering this throughout the week. Um, this, this is a letter written to pastors, and so uh, here I am, find myself in that role. Um, I don't get paid to be a pastor here, um, but I am a pastor of, of this church, and um, I don't know if I can get to stand up here in front of you all and, and share with you. This is actually the one time a year that I, that I get to do it. So um, I, I did just kind of want to step aside and, and just say, like, um, as, as a pastor who you don't get to hear from, uh, I just want you to hear a little bit more of, of my heart and, and my, uh, what I think about this church. So um, I learned early on in life that we all experience suffering and, and pain. 
Um, and when I look around this room, I know so many of the stories and so many of the things that are going on, and I know there's so much that I don't know either. And uh, that's, that's why I became a pastor. I, I didn't really aspire to it. Uh, Chris and Spencer kind of brought it to me, and I dragged my feet for several years, and God kind of kept pushing it back in front of me. But um, I care deeply about all of you. Um, this is, Ellen and I made our home here. Um, this is where we have put our roots down, and we really love this church and love this group of people that's here. Um, and I speak for all of our pastors when, when I say that, that um, we care deeply about each and every one of you. And I just want you to know that we see you. We, we do, we absolutely pray for you. When you write in those cards, when you send in stuff on the, the website, we, we see you and we pray for you. Um, and uh, it's, it's not easy work doing this. It's, it's hard <laughs> and it's really frustrating sometimes. Um, there's a lot of really great things too. Um, but there is, there is a lot of hard things going on. And, and so, um, you know, as Chris often says, being a pastor is like you're taking shots. You're, you're taking things on for the sake of the church. And I just wanted to stand here and tell you all, like, it is, it's worth it. Um, I, I care about all of you. I want you all to know and see Jesus and see that he is worth it and that um, what we're doing here is, is amazing. And uh, it, it's it's. Um, something that I'm really thankful and, and humbled that I get to do. So I hope you hear me right. I'm not trying to put myself up on a pedestal here. I'm just trying to say, um, as someone who is able to stand up here and speak to you all, um, I just want you all to know that Jesus is worth it. Um, the gospel is worth it, and being part of this church is um, just a really great honor and pleasure. So that's, that's kind of my, it's my little tangent, because uh, I only get to come up here once, so... But let's dive in on something that's even more beautiful and I think even more powerful. Because when you think about who has embodied power, love, self-discipline, who has been the perfect shepherd and pastor, not Jesus? Didn't Jesus display all of these things as he lived perfectly, uh, lived the life that we could not and died in our place? Even think Jesus had hands laid on him. Paul talks about laying his hands on Timothy and kind of commissioning him for ministry, um, except the hands that Jesus had laid on him were not hands commissioning him for ministry or lovingly sending him to go on mission. Um, they were hands that were there to beat him and bind him and pound nails through his body and to raise him up on a bloody cross. So think about this idea of shame and suffering and look at this verse let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured, or read suffering, suffered the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What makes any of this possible for us to gather together and just reflect on these things is the fact that Jesus is the one who's done this perfectly for us. So when we encounter suffering, when we seek to be more like him, we have a savior who can perfectly relate to us. Jesus is the perfect pastor. He's the perfect shepherd. Um, and, and so he knows you all even better than any of us ever could. Um, we are imperfect people who are pastors at this church, but Jesus is perfect. So anytime you see a Christian leader or pastor emulating Christ to you, um, or when, especially when they let you down and they don't, remember Jesus and look to the cross uh, because he is the perfect sufferer on our behalf. 
All right, so finally I want to circle back and answer that question I, I posed at the beginning, which is, why, why do we preach the, the way that we do here? Why, why, do we, why do we care about this so much? And so what we're going to do is we're going to go now look at the, the last verses here, 11 through 14. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and that is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So as pastors, we can read this letter as instruction about how to preach, how to teach. Um, so very simply, one of the reasons to answer the question of why we preach the way we do is because we're persuaded the Bible tells us to. Uh, the Bible teaches us to preach in a gospel-centered way, and it's passages like this that, that support that. So in our sermons, we're always going to get back to Jesus. We, we believe everything, every promise of God finds its yes in Christ. So I think the good deposit here that Paul is referring to is the gospel. It is how we preach and teach, and that is worth guarding. Uh, it has been entrusted to us, especially as pastors, to guard that. And that good deposit is a unique message. That's why we have to guard it. It is different from every other world religion that, that is out there. This crazy news that God came down to us, we don't ascend to him. That Jesus was a real man who was fully human and fully God, that he lived a perfect life, um, and that he died and defeated our greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and the devil. And that is a good deposit that we have to guard as pastors. So I've had an opportunity to study a little bit with Chris, uh, a little bit more kind of just about what it is to preach and um, kind of how we do this. And so I was listening to a podcast where some pastors were talking uh, to each other, and there was uh, they were talking about this idea of gospel-centered preaching, and one of the pastors was just saying, I ended all of my sermons with application for 10 years, right? Like, okay, here's the good news, now go, go do this. And he said, and they never listened. <laughs> or they would, kind of, and then, you know, the next week we'd be back doing the same things. And so he said, I started ending with the cross. And that's when I finally started to notice change in people at our church. So we could linger on this idea for a long time, but um, there's this interesting uh, kind of quote or passage from a bishop who died in the year 1900. So I kind of like going back to people, you know, hundreds of years ago, so you know we're not just making this up. Uh, but he was just sharing this idea of uh, how do we spoil the gospel? Uh, and kind of it was actually on this passage where he was talking about how do we guard the good deposit? What are we guarding it from? And so I'm going to read through, but these are kind of the, the five different ideas here on ways you can spoil the gospel from J.C. Ryle. You may spoil the gospel by substitution. You have only to withdraw from the eyes of the sinner the grand object which the Bible proposes to faith, Jesus Christ, and to substitute another object in its place. And the mischief is done. Substitute anything for Christ, and the gospel is totally spoiled. You may spoil the gospel by addition. You have only to add to Christ, the grand object of faith, something other as equally worthy of honor, and the mischief is done. Add anything to Christ, and the gospel ceases to be a pure gospel. 
You may spoil the gospel by interposition. I don't know what that word means, but context clues. You have only to push something between Christ and the eye of the soul to draw away the sinner's attention from the Savior, and the mischief is done. You may spoil the gospel by disproportion. You have only to attach an exaggerated importance to the secondary things of Christianity and a diminished importance to the first things, and the mischief is done. You may completely spoil the gospel by confused and contradictory directions, complicated and obscure statements of faith, baptism, church privileges, and the benefits of the Lord's Supper are almost as bad as no statement at all. Point here is we can get distracted really easily. And that's why we preach the way we preach here at Hiawatha Church. It's because we are called as your pastors to guard this good deposit of the gospel and to not let anything get in the way of that. And this is the best way that we know how to do it. It's not perfect, but this is the best way we know how. So to tell you about Jesus, we're going to do that again and again and again until we are blue in the face, and then we will do it more. So that's the answer to that question, why we preach the way we do, but that's not where we're going to land the plane today. I want to go back two verses, and I want to leave you something that I think is, is pretty awesome. So when we go back two verses, we see something much more profound um, than Paul's instructions to Timothy on guarding the gospel, because guarding was mentioned earlier. So let's read verse 11 and 12. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and that is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted him to that, until that day. That is the greatest part of everything we've read up to this point. That is a relief. The greatest freedom is right there. He is able to guard what we have entrusted to him. What Paul is saying is he has entrusted his life to Christ. He has believed in this gospel message, and he is suffering for it. He is not ashamed, but he is convinced that Jesus is able to guard his life until whatever day he goes home. And do you see how that is such great news? We are going to fail you. I am going to fail you. I'll just speak for myself. I am going to let you down. Uh, if you know me well, I am not, I'm not a perfect guy. Um, we are all broken and sinful people as pastors right alongside you. And, and us all as a congregation, we are going to sin against each other. We are going to hurt each other. We're going to say the wrong thing. We're going to get frustrated. If it were up to us to perfectly guard the good deposit of the gospel, this church would not exist probably. So that's why there is great news right here. Um, because when we fail you, when we fail each other, we can look to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, the one who guards us. Jesus died so that we are not dead in our sins. He destroyed death so that we can be alive with him. The tomb is empty. And that's why we're going to end with this every single time we get up here. So that if you're sitting here today and that load is feeling heavy, whatever it is that you've walked in with this morning, Look to Jesus, who is right there guarding you. If you're sitting here believing the gospel, but you are afraid, 
you know that there are pieces of Christ that you're just ashamed or you're just nervous to bring it up or you don't know how, take heart because Jesus is guarding you and he is right there with you. And if you are, are suffering, if life is just really, really hard right now, take heart because Jesus is right there with you in your suffering, guarding you. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus yet, I hope this stirred something in you. I, I hope you see that there is hope here, that there, there is there's something missing in your heart where you just feel like, I just am never content, never satisfied with life. Look to Jesus. Look to the cross in this tomb. Ask us about it. Turn to someone next to you and ask them about it because there is hope and freedom and life from your sin and from that hole in your heart. Um, and it's Jesus. He is the answer. How about the church? Jesus is worth it. He is worth it. He loves you. He wants to be with you. He is guarding you right now. He has been since the beginning of time. Let just the crazy power and amazing news of that carry you this week. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are powerful when we are not. Thank you that you see us in the midst of our brokenness, in our pain, in our suffering. God, when we are ashamed of you, you are not ashamed of us. And when we are suffering, you have suffered right with us. Thank you for that good news. Would that carry us through this week? Um, and thank you for this church that we get to gather and continue to be reminded of who you are and what you've done. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.